Greetings, ozone enthusiasts, orcaholics, and fans of science-based facts and fact-based reality. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Larian, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. The last time I saw Andrew Weaver, the world-renowned climate scientist, was beating a climate denier to death with his Nobel Peace Prize. The leader of the B.C. Greens and the first Green Party member ever elected to British Columbia's provincial legislature was a regular performer in a Victoria improv talk show. The host, Wes Borg, a former dead troll in a baggie and one of Canada's funniest improvisers, decided to do a theme show on the environment. I'd appear as a tree-hugging hippie. A huge stretch. Weaver would play Weaver with a huge Nobel Peace Prize prop. Another actor would join us as a rabid climate denier. The show ended with Weaver bludgeoning the climate denier while I rocked back and forth in fetal position, singing Kumbaya. Weaver was hilarious, and I thought, if this guy gets into the debates in the upcoming provincial election, things are going to get interesting. Things are going to get interesting. I interviewed Weaver in his office at the B.C. legislature the day before Premier Christy Clark dropped the writ to kick off our 2017 provincial election, and he was already in full campaign mode. Because this podcast isn't just for the people of B.C. or Canada, I kicked off by asking Weaver why an academic would leave the ivory tower for the mud pit. Since scientists and academics in the U.S. and around the world are now being urged to run for office to lead the fight for fact-based public policy. We also talked about the focus of SCANA, our oceans, our environment, and our orcas. So we talked climate policies, his thoughts on the proposed Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion, liquid natural gas, and why he entered politics with a party that had never elected a candidate instead of running for the two parties that have dueled it out for decades, the Liberals and the NDP. This episode is sponsored by the National Observer. One of the reasons I really wanted to launch this podcast was because environmental coverage and environmental reporters are kind of going extinct. And one place that they are alive and thriving is the National Observer. If you're not checking out the Observer, you should be. You should be subscribing and checking out my stuff over there, too. This is also brought to you by our amazing patrons at Patreon.com. People like Darren Larnian, Chantel Shawnee-Surratt, Joan Watterson, and Tony Wask. What to expect when you vote. First off, you'll need to take ID that proves your identity and residential address. And you should take your where to vote card with you as well. When you arrive at the voting place, you'll be greeted by the information officer who will ask you if everything on your where to vote card is correct. If it is, you'll be directed to your assigned voting station. So I've got to just start asking, politics. What made you think politics? Yeah, you know, five years ago, if you'd said the same thing, I said, what are you talking about, politics? No way I'm going to go into politics. But, you know, what happened is, um, as I've told others, I spent 25, nearly 20, 25 years at UVic. Um, and one course I developed was called Climate and Society. And it's a third year course. And the whole idea is to discuss the causes, consequences, blah, 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 global warming. One of the things I do is I frame that whole issue in terms of an issue of intergenerational equity. And then I point out that the decision makers of today don't have to live the consequences of the decisions they're making, yet it is the youth of the day who do, and they're not participating in our democracy with 30 to 40% showing up at the polls in any given year. So I point this to them and say, look, this is your issue. My generation, we don't have to uh, worry about it because it ain't going to affect me. It affects you and you're not, you're not voting. And they'd say to me, ah, oh, they're all the same, they're all corrupt, or oh, my vote doesn't count. And I'd go, no, 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 you, this is the system we have. You've got to be part of it. It does count. And I'd give an example of a close election race or two. And, but eventually, you know, um, I'd, say, and I'd say, if you don't like him too, you can stand up and run yourself. Or find someone to run and get behind them. And, and it was, Jane Sturck approached me four times. Uh, three times I said no. And the fourth time, I kind of felt like I should take a look in the mirror and say yes to Jane to help her and the party. 
Um, with, and I, I didn't know that I would win at the begin with. I thought, I'm going to give it a good shot. I like a good competition. I, I'm running on principle, uh, not to make this a career path. And lo and behold, I won. But what's more interesting for me was I won with the highest voter turnout in the province of British Columbia at 70%. And since I got elected, it was a long, steep learning curve, uh, clearly. But I realized that this has got to be the most rewarding job anybody can have anywhere in the world. Being able to represent people in decision making, to put, to help people access the system. It's just a remarkable opportunity. And I'm, I agreed to be leader to help others who have similar stories to me across the province join the party and run. And I'm excited about what's happening in the upcoming election. Well, it's interesting because that hits my other question is you'd helped the liberals come up with their climate strategy, which, you know, is now copied around the world, sure. you know, and, and admired around the world. Uh, what made you decide green? Why did you go, okay, I'm not only going to run, I'm not only going to run, I'm not going to run with either the parties that usually wins. Well, so the liberals under Gordon Campbell clearly showed leadership on the climate file. They brought in a, a whole suite of very progressive policies that I was very in, involved with. And then what happened is Premier Clark comes along and starts to dismantle them one by one by one, uh, such now that it's, it's but a legacy that has gone. And she's still trying to get credit for doing this, which is remarkable. The, the moxie to stand up and claim you're still a leader when you've dismantled most of the policies is galling. But I, I couldn't stand by and watch. And I remember in 2009 very well the BC NDP running on an axe the tax campaign. Like, how cynical is that without an opportunity, <coughs> without offering anything um, on the other side? So I, I thought, look, the NDP, acts the tax, don't trust them. The BC Liberals, they're a train wreck on climate policy. I'll run with the Greens, because Jane Sturck, I have huge respect for and still do, um, had a vision. I, I could get behind her vision. And I, I said, I'll, I'll help you, Jane. I'll run in this riding here and, and see what I can do. And so here we are. Now, I'm curious because you, you know, you've spent your career working with what are now called millennials, yeah. but what used to be called 20 year olds. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've spent your entire career hanging out with young voters. What has that done for you and how does that energize or impact the Green Party? Well, it's funny. <clears throat> if you look out there, my two legislative staff here are millennials. If you go to the campaign team, a, a campaign office, they're almost entirely millennials. If you look at many of our candidates, they are millennials. Uh, you know, I have two children who are millennials. So, so uh, you know, it's 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 important that we recognize, and and I believe first and foremost that we recognize that we owe it to the next generation to leave behind a, an environment, an economy, uh, social services that we had the benefit of our, uh, from ourselves. This is the first generation, my generation, that is going to leave behind a world that is in worse state than we inherited it from our parents. And that's a very sad testament uh, to 21st century uh, society. It's a very sad testament. Greed and personal personal greed and, and the me generation have taken us to a state now that we're simply ignoring our effects on others. And the millennial generation, you know, is, is going to reap the, 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 the problems. You know, I wrote a book um, called Generation Us, The Challenges of Global Morning and, uh, Warming. And one of the things I conclude in the book is that until we get beyond the generation me and start thinking about the generation us, we're not going to deal with these problems. We have to start to recognize that our, it is not only for me, is that my ability to, to live a prosperous life should not affect your ability to live one after me. And I think that's kind of the essence of who we are. We believe in long-term thinking. We believe in leaving behind, uh, not burdening future generations with debt, with uh, lack of social um, uh, programs or with uh, environmental devastation. Well, I'm, when we first met, you handed me the book. I don't know if it was Generation Us. It was your young people's book. That was the, that's Generation, Generation Us. Is yes. the kids is yes. the is the youth book. Yeah, it's, it's targeted. It's called it's called for for a reluctant readers. It's, yes, it reads at a grade eight to ten level, but it can be accessed by anyone from ten years old to one hundred and ten years old. So you're used to trying to get people engaged in these issues. Oh yeah, that's that's what I did at the university, and and I you know I I, I felt as well, um, you know I, I don't know whether uh, your listeners will or your, your viewers will will um, know about VictoriaWeather.ca or IslandWeather.ca. You know we we also engaged with elementary schools and and, and people across Vancouver Island, putting up a, over 150 weather stations on schools to 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 bring curriculum resources and learning resources to teachers at no cost to them so that they can deliver the curriculum. So it, I've always believed it important to 
engage broader society in terms of the importance of science because ultimately it is the taxpayer who funds the science that we do. And if they don't realize, if the taxpayer doesn't realize the importance of your science, just look south at the border right now, there's, there's less of a desire to continue funding it. And you move into this alternate fact world that they're now struggling with south of the border, where my opinion is suddenly a fact. But, but wait, isn't it matter what you lie about? Isn't lying about blowjobs way less important <laughs> yes. than lying about the things Republicans lie about? Like whether... Like, like global warming isn't real. Do you think or weapons Ted, Cruz, of mass destruction? Ted Cruz, who has degrees from Princeton and Harvard, do you really think he thinks global warming is a hoax? Or does he know it's true, but he tells that to you the know, rubes who vote for him? Because uh, they believe Which is a worse lie? Well, that raises another question. How do you deal with this world of alternate facts? How do you... How, do you deal with the United States right now? Uh, well, I, you don't. You let the United States deal with itself. Right now, they are in a real uh, predicament because um, around the world, people are no longer looking to them for leadership. Around, they're, they're missing out on the opportunities of the 21st century economy that involve clean energy, the clean tech sector, automation. And, and they're, they're going back into the last century, you know, uh, they they will deal with themselves right now. Jurisdictions like China, Japan, uh, Korea, South Korea, uh, places like Canada, South America. People recognize Europe, recognize the direction the world is heading in terms of investment in clean renewable energy and the, and the, and the knowledge economies of tomorrow. The U.S. can try to chase us back to the 20th century, but they'll be going there alone. Maybe bringing Alberta and Christy Clark back with them, but the rest of the world is moving forward. Okay. Um, there was a lovely quote I read uh, from you when you first were elected about uh, running because of the Wayne Gretzky effect. Can you tell me about the Wayne Gretzky effect? <laughs> oh, well, that's, you know, somebody, <laughs> somebody said, um, uh, I guess I, that going back then, someone said, well, you're running at the peak of your career. And, and, and I said, yeah, that's true. And, and, and maybe that's the best time to run at the peak of your career, uh, in science, because the last thing you want to do is, is play those extra, those extra two seasons with the Rangers. And suddenly, you know, you're, you're known, you're only known for your last couple of seasons. And so, you know, my productivity had, was still at its peak, but I couldn't continue to rise. So then maybe that was a good time. I left my, my career as a climate scientist at the peak of my career. At, at right, uh, right during the writing of the fifth assessment report, port, and um, you know, I, leaving at the peak is a good thing because you're remembered when you were at the peak, as opposed to you know, I can look back and say I gave everything I had to my climate science um, uh, students, my postdocs, the model. Uh, I worked very hard in, at the University of Victoria, and I can look back with pride. And I never slept off. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. You can't be as creative in terms of some of the science you do. It's, it's tiring to write those grant proposals. And so I, I felt the transition time eventually, uh, uh, the fourth time Jane asked, was actually a good one. Well, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, because I mean, I've uh, spent a lot of time interviewing Dr. Pat McGear for the work I've been right. doing on Moby Doll. And I remember what an alien he was considered being a PhD in the legislature. Right. And it hit me, have we had it, certainly not many PhDs? We got six on the BC. That's group. what I was thinking. But since McGear, like, are you, have there, are you aware of? They're, uh, they're I mean, they're, please tell they're, me they're, they're, they're a few. There might be, there must be. Um, I know. I mean, I, I, I don't know everybody in legislature since Pat McGear, who, uh, I remember Pat too, because I was a student at UBC at the time, um, living in Point Grey when he was running, uh, for, for, as a, I believe it was social credit at the time, uh, under the Bill Bennett government. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I know that on the BC Green team, we got six of them. Like, what other, what other party has six PhD scientists running with them? We got one fellow. His name's Chris Maxwell running in Victoria Swan Lake. He's a UBC prof who works at the Vancouver Children's Hospital as a pediatric cancer researcher. He's one of the leads of a pediatric cancer research group there. I mean, he wants to return back to his home where his family still live. And, and so he's running for us in Victoria Swan Lake. We've got uh, 
Michael Markwick, a PhD at, at Capilano University, Social Sciences. We've got Alison Shaw, a PhD in Environmental Sciences out at, at, um, uh, in Kelowna. We've got uh, Peter Hallschmidt, a PhD in Electrical Engineering. We've got Janet Fraser, a PhD in Chemistry. You know, we've got some really, really educated people, but we've also got, we've got a diversity. We're not a bunch of elitists. We have, um, a, we've got an amazing woman who's a firefighter, but she also, you know, runs a green film, um, uh, area group. <clears throat> She's, we have a person who works in a, in a mill. We've got a, a, a small business owner. We've got, um, civil servants. We've got uh, lawyers. We've got a diverse team. We've got first nation leaders. We've got, um, you know, an architect. We've got a great bunch of people, just amazing quality team. And our platform is second to none, too, because it's been put together by a significant number of civil servants who've retired into Oak Bay Gordon Head or in other areas. So, they, I mean, they're just willing to help out to create good policy, not political policy, but good policy. And that has been, you know, our strength is our, is our platform when people see it. I was just thinking, how did you convince all these people to run? Or they're all going to be, or if they wake up and the polls start showing them winning, they're all going to be terrified. Like, what's the situation for them? I think their stories are very similar to mine. Um, some needed convincing. You know, once we, we've got, I think we're announcing six today, so we'll be at 82 candidates. You know, the, the, in, in the last couple of weeks, some people, we, you know, they said they would, then they wouldn't, then they wouldn't, so we've convinced them to do it. Um, but many, their story is the same, is that they are standing by watching our province go in a direction that they do not like, knowing how much we have to offer, both in terms of this, our democracy, in terms of the beauty of our natural environment, in terms of our ability to attract and retain people, our access to clean resources. And they look, so they don't, they want the liberals gone. They look to the BC NDP and they don't know what they stand for. And they worry that they'll be no different from the way they were in the 1990s with the war on the woods and, and in the 2009 with the axe attacks. Um, you know, cause they say anything, it seems to anyone about what do you want me to say? Okay, I'll say that. And that's their platform. So there's no principle. And so these are people who are stepping aside as a matter of principle to put people first. If they don't get elected, none of them care. Well, they'd love to be elected, but they'll go back to their careers. Just like, you know, I'm giving 100%. I really want to represent the people of Oak Bay Gordon Head. But if they so choose that I'm not the one for them, I will have done everything I can, and I will accept that, and I'll go back to university um, for a couple of years, maybe see something else, and, and, you know, play those extra two seasons for the New York Rangers. So when uh, the Liberals started running attack, attacks on you, did you feel like you'd arrived? It, it, was, it was nice. It's funny. There was two. Um, I was read a, a press release that the NDP did, and I was also read a press release that the Liberals did. And my response was to laugh. I couldn't stop laughing because these were both parties, of it, especially the, I mean, the NDP had been attacking. Like, I don't get the NDP. There's one VC Green in there. It's at times I feel they're spending more time attacking me than they are the Liberals. And it doesn't actually work well to progressive voters to actually be seen as regressive in terms of attacking others. I don't get them, but, but the Liberals, when they came out, you know, guns are blazing. I thought, ah, this is interesting. And I know why it's interesting because the polls on Vancouver Island, we're first at liberals are third, but we're drawing not only from voters who have never voted before, not only from, from the NDP, but also from federal liberals and conservatives who feel that they just do not like the direction. They want this government to change. They do not see the NDP as a viable alternative. And they see us as especially our candidates, is credible and they're willing to get behind us. You know, every, today in Oak Bay, I was stopped on the street by a woman. Uh, I just toured a senior's home and she said to me, good luck. And I went over and said, thank you. That's very nice of you. I'm a long time card carrying conservative. I've always voted conservative as long as I live, but I'm voting green this time. I'm voting green because Christy Clark has to go. This government is corrupt. That's the kind of, you know, we're getting, she'll never vote NDP, never in a million years. She's a lifelong voter, but she sees us as a potential to be an honest broker in the upcoming election. Well, the interesting thing is the right-wing party has never won. It, it, sorry, the NDP has never won without a, without a split. Exactly. In the, uh, like, just historically, it yeah. just never happened. And I think for the liberals, when you got in, you looked like a godsend because you looked like a permanent split yes. on the left. And I'm like, what if it's not just left? What if you draw from both sides then it's a total game changer. And you're absolutely right. We know that the two times the NDP have won in this province, two times, there was 
three parties. It went yeah. back with uh, Bill Bennett, with the Socreds and the and the conserv. I was a conservative back then. With, with uh, well, Clark, won, uh, sorry, Gordon Campbell lost his first election yeah. because he didn't play nicely with the Socreds. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. the BC Socreds went, <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, and they took his vote. Yeah. So it, and so in the 1990s and in the 70s. So so having, but you know, we why it's interesting is that we don't fit into this traditional left versus right because. You might suggest that if in a traditional left versus right paradigm that on social issues, the Greens might be viewed as left of center. On fiscal issues, we might be viewed as right of center. But why I think it doesn't work to label us that way is because we like to think about the long-term consequences of our decisions. For example, we, we're, we announced in our platform a heavy investment, more than $4 billion into education, which some might view as very left policy. However, there are reasons to do that that are both socially important, but fiscally important. It makes no sense for us not to to invest in our next generation of citizenship. You know, what sort of society are we if we don't value as our top priority the education of our children who will be there for us as we get older? And who, and in terms of, you know, we've had so many cutbacks in terms of child support in the school system. What we're starting to see is the ramifications of that. We're all dealing with a, a, a fentanyl crisis right now. We're throwing money at harm reduction. Good to, to deal with harm reduction. But what about the question of why are people there? Why aren't children being diagnosed in schools if they have certain issues? Because there are no child psychologists, because they've all been cut. Only the wealthy can find the money to, to get them done. So you invest early. You actually have long-term outcomes that are more positive, and you save money. So it's both a, a smart social policy, but it's also a smart fiscal policy. So, and we, so we've got the research on that. So that, that's our approach. We think in terms of more than four-year cycles, but in the long-term betterment of our society. Basic income, another issue. We're bringing in the concept of basic income, ensuring everyone has a certain level of income. Now, that might sound like, wow, where's the money coming from? Well, you know, you save money, just like happened in Dauphin, Manitoba, because you start, like, like what I, I, I dream of a time when we don't have food banks. This shouldn't be necessary. If you had a level of basic income, you wouldn't need a food bank. You wouldn't need to have some of the services that we have to support people who, who can't make hands meet, and, and with the level of basic income, it protects people during the downtimes and lets them rise above and down. And so, so we let create the level of playing field. It eliminates student debt. You don't have students starting off their professional career with $75,000 debt, then stuck in a poverty trap for the rest of their life. Basic income would assume they wouldn't take the debt on it in the first place. So this is kind of a, a whole different way of thinking. It's more of a European, Northern European way of thinking, kind of Sweden, uh, Finland, Norway, Denmark way of thinking. That's the direction that they're uh, heading, uh, rather than a traditional kind of um, liberal style, which is Texas way of thinking, or NDP style, which is you know a, you know a, a um, Labour Party in Britain way of thinking from the last seventies. Now, my focus for for the podcast is, is environmental issues. What do you think are the biggest environmental issues? that we're looking at. The biggest overarching environmental issue, in my view, is, of course, climate change, because all other environmental issues are really are a subset of that. You know, we can fight to protect a stream, which is important, but if you don't deal with climate change, you won't be able to protect that stream. We can fight to protect grizzlies, and that's important, but if we don't protect from climate change, they're going to go, various species will go extinct anyway. The species extinction rate we're happening now makes the five previous great extinction events pale in comparison. So, so climate change is the biggest issue, but it's also a great opportunity. And, and, and so, so to me, you know, when I say we will eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, we will eliminate fossil fuel subsidies. When I say that, that, that fossil fuel is a sunset industry, well, it, it will be a sunset industry in BC. And that, but, the, but it creates opportunities as you start to recognize that the new economy will be a clean economy. So that's the overarching one. The, the, the sub, subtext to that, I mean, so that, that means things like Kinder Morgan gone, natural gas, I mean, LNG gone. These are the kind of, these are the kind of, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, symptoms of dealing with that bigger problem. But in terms of, um, then in terms of in, uh, more short term, that's the long term. Short term, the issues is cumulative effects of our, of our resource extraction. So that, you know, what we, what we have right now is a process whereby you have a mine over here, forestry over here, oil and gas over here. And nobody's talking to anyone, and there's no cumulative impacts assessment. And then you get in situations where you start pitting wolves against caribou because you have 14 wolves left, and now you're required to save them. How do you save them? You shoot wolves, and but meanwhile, you know, you know they're there because of natural habitat loss. So the key thing is one of the things we're doing. We will propose 
is creation of a natural resources board, which will actually ensure that cumulative effects are taken into account in resource development, which is important because, you know, we have to think about the long-term sustainability of our resource sector. Forestry, great. Wildlife, great. They are sustainable if managed properly. You know, mining, not sustainable, but, but necessary. Uh, oil and gas, not sustainable, but not required. So that's the kind of approach we, we'd take. A quick sketch. Enbridge's proposed Northern Gateway Pipeline is out. An upgrade to the company's East Running, Line 3, is in. But here's the ground shaker. Cabinet approval for Kinder Morgan's expanded Trans Mountain to BC's heavily populated Lower Mainland Coast. The CBC's Margot McDermott starts us off tonight with the messy politics involved. Margot. Peter, those two approved pipelines will carry more than a million barrels of oil a day to other countries. The fix was in. I participated, I was the only MLA who participated in the NEB hearing process. The, the BC NDP didn't even bother to submit, even the party didn't even bother to act as interveners. It was just shocking. So we, my, my, my office here, we participated in that. We read the thousands and thousands of pages, submitted hundreds and hundreds of questions. I gave oral testimony. I wrote to the prime minister. I wrote, uh, you know, uh, intervention uh, questions. And we did this over the course of, of, of a couple of years. It was a ton of work. And there was five of us from my office um, working on it here. Uh, the fix was in. I went before the NEB process and I outlined some of the problems. Here's the simplest one that just, to me, summarizes the whole thing. The entire oil spill response put forward by Kinder Morgan for di di diluted bitumen in coastal waters was, done, predi was predicated on the existence of 20 hours of sunlight, calm conditions, and the winds blowing offshore. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to calculate that you cannot be anywhere south of the latitude of Tuktoyaktuk on any day of the year to get 20 hours of sunlight. So in essence, their oil spill response was done for conditions around Tuktoyaktuk, hardly relevant to the Salish Sea. Yet when I asked them to redo this using realistic, using realistic values of both, you know, wind, et cetera, et cetera, I was told that the, they didn't do it and the, that the NEB had enough information before them on which to make a decision. And when I, when I challenged that decision, the NEB said, no, it's fine. I even challenged to get references, references for outrageous statements in there. And the NEB would say, no, you've got to, they would refuse. We've got enough information. The rig was in. It was clear. Um, some people pulled out of it, like a few very well-known people pulled out, and I respected them for doing that. As an MLA, I, I had to stay in because I promised to my constituents that I would. And I followed through with that. But then now we come to the final decision making. So why is it that they got the permit? Well, again, politics at play. We've got a, pr a prime minister who wanted to get Alberta on board in terms of $50 a ton pricing across the country. In order to do that, he had to give her something. He had to give her a couple of pipelines. And Trudeau would much rather deal with Rachel Notley than Jason Kenney. That's for sure. So he gives her a couple of pipelines. But the Trudeau, but the premier of BC is kind of antsy about this because she knows she's going to get some flack with Kinder Morgan, so she needs something too. She needs to get a Pacific Northwest LNG and a Site C approval. So we give her that. That all of a sudden, her conditions have been met, but nobody actually knew what criteria she was assessing her five conditions for. Does she believe it's okay to have an oil spill response using conditions at the latitude of Tuktoyakta when we can't even clean up diluted bitumen in the ocean? That was just, it was all a sham on the BC side. Those five conditions that I thought, naively thought, were being used appropriately by BC. Certainly the, the lawyers on the BC uh, NEB team asking the hard questions were, were doing a good job. They just got thrown under the bus by the Premier who just washed the condition, her, her hands on these five conditions without saying how they were met. So now we've got the Premier on and so why does Trudeau approve it? Because he can't, get, he can't, give, he can't give Energy East a pipeline through Quebec because the calculation was done. How many seats are we going to lose in Quebec if we bring a diluted bitumen pipeline through Quebec? Versus how many will we lose in BC and how many will we gain in Alberta and Saskatchewan? Pure political calculation, cynical political calculation that actually is shameful. And I think that Mr. Trudeau is going to, is going to hear from British Columbians about that. I think, uh, Ms. Clark is going to hear from British Columbians about that. I think she's going to have a go down in a quite a resounding defeat in the upcoming election as a direct consequence of the fact that people can't trust her.
Clockwood Sound has become an international cause celebre and a growing threat to British Columbia's image abroad. Today, the provincial government took action it hopes will end the argument forever. Today, I am pleased to announce that the government accepts the Clockwood Sound Scientific Panel's report in its entirety and will move to fully implement its recommendations. This will mean an end to conventional clear-cutting in Clockwood Sound the spectacular beauty of Clackwood Sound made it an environmental poster child, a target for those who would stop clear-cut logging of its ancient trees. In the summer of 93, some 800 people were arrested for illegally blocking loggers from going to work. And in 94, environmentalists went to Europe to pressure customers of Clackwood Sound wood products to cancel contracts. This year, big U.S. customers like the New York Times felt the pressure. Well, it hits me that Kinder Morgan, uh, and I keep hearing this from activists, but I, I mean, I'm also just logicking it out, that Kinder Morgan can make the war in the woods look like a picnic because it was difficult yes. to go out and protest yes. for the war in the woods. Yes. It is easy to show up at Burnaby Mountain. There's a university conveniently yes. located nearby. Yes. University students protest. So what do you think we're in for if Kinder Morgan well, goes ahead? You know, the, uh, the irony, I mean, you mentioned war in the woods. Uh, Glenn Clark government, John Horgan working in the BC NDP at the time. So do we really, do we really think that environmental issues are going to be front and center with the BC NDP? Uh, they're trying to claim they are, but I don't. I look at the BC liberals. They have no idea what, what beast they've unleashed if this is to go forward. You're right. I mean, the protests will be long and hard and war in the woods. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to what, what's going to happen. Uh, in the um, in the Burnaby area, it's a SkyTrain from downtown Vancouver. Maybe a, maybe a, a bus up to, to SFU from the end of the SkyTrain. Um, actually, I've taken the SkyTrain and bus before. It's not difficult to get there, and there will be lots of people there. Now, um, can we talk a bit about the Species at Risk Act and the orcas? Because that's what got me into all this. the The reason I'm doing this is because I've started studying the orcas. And the Kinder Morgan, the the fact that the NEB report, which has never been a pipeline they, had, they didn't like, yes. said this will cause significant adverse yes. effects on southern resident orcas. And I talked to scientist after scientist, and I said, can a population this size, and it was 83 the night I wrote my speech, and it was 82 when I got home from... from the know, young babies died. Yeah. How many died this year? There, uh, Cause it was a good birth rate this year and then. Phenomenal. They lost four. Uh, it was, good birth rate was the year before because okay. of all salmon. Right. And they've dropped from 83 to 79. So they've dropped from the year before. Yeah, we're down to 79. Um, and, which is, you know, stunning. So I'm going, and I just kept asking, can these, can a population this size survive significant adverse effects? And every single person I spoke to said, no, absolutely not. So I want to know your thoughts on the I, Southern Resident Truckers and what I, they mean to BC. And well, I'm not a marine biologist, so I can't comment on the effects of sound or adverse effects on orcas. You know, they are an iconic species in BC. You know, we have, we have entire industry that's grown up about called whale washing. I mean, this is, there's a lot of people employed in that sector. It is part of, it defines who we are. You know, the grizzly bear in the, in the coastal, in the, in Great Bear and the, and the orca in the, in the southern, in the Salish Sea. These are, these define what, what it means to be British Columbians. To have a potential threat for these iconic species, for particularly the orca, it's, I don't even begin to imagine it. I mean, it would be, it's, it's, it's just sad to even think about it. It's sad to think about it that we would think it's okay, that it's okay to ship a raw product, not even refined product. Like if Alberta refined it, it would be a different thing. We'd have at least some of the environmental arguments with respect to oil spills would be undermined because you can clean up diesel. You can't clean up diluted bitumen. Wouldn't affect the orca issue, of course. But the fact that we would put some hypothetical pipeline and some hypothetical products ship, shipping some, something to, to somewhere that may or may not want it in the years ahead because the world's decarbonizing and we'd risk an iconic species is mind-boggling to me. I, it's just, I can't, I just don't understand it. Do you recall the first time you saw a whale? That's a good, do I recall the first time, you know, I grew up in Victoria and I've taken BC ferries ever since I was a kid and I've seen orcas, so, the most spectacular uh, whales I've seen was coming from Prince Rupert to Port Hardy 
they're not southern uh, southern uh, Vancouver Island whales, but there was I mean it's spectacular what you what you see on the inside passage up there. Um, in terms of the orcas, I've been seeing them ever since I was a little kid, since I first went on the BC ferries, wherever that started. I was born in 1961. I don't know when the BC ferries started, but I've been going back and forth on those for, for decades. Cool. Now, you were talking about refining. Um, one of the more controversial things that I've seen you talk about is the is the Kitimat yeah. refinery yeah. proposed by David Black. Can you talk about your stance on that? Where, yeah, where I mean, my, my stance is very clear. The Paris Agreement has said the world's trying to keep warming to below two degrees. We have already warmed by one of, by more than one degree. We have 0.6 degree warming as a direct consequence of existing levels of greenhouse gases to occur. That's 1.6. We have a permafrost carbon feedback of between 0.2 and 0.3. We have between 1.8 and 1.9 degrees warming in the cards now. The signing of Paris and prior to that Copenhagen Accord in 2009 translates to this. Effective immediately, we must begin the decarbonization of our energy systems. And that, in turn, translates to the fact that we cannot invest in any new fossil fuel infrastructure that's going to be around for decades, because doing so is inconsistent with the Paris or Copenhagen Accords, because you don't build infrastructure today to tear it down tomorrow. In the process of decarbonization, it means effective immediately, we start to transition away, not build new capacity, transition away. The Saudis get this. The Saudis get this, and they're dumping their cheapest in the world oil out of the ground because they know that the, if the world decarbonizes, they might as well get theirs out of the ground first because it's the cheapest. You know, to think that Alberta is going to somehow compete on a, on a market like that is where it's cost twice as much as Saudi. It, 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 I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, so in terms of David Black, all I ever said was this. And this is, you know, the, 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 it's typical spin stuff, right? Because NDP have this sense of entitlement to be in a government in waiting. And so all sorts of nonsense gets spread. What I said to this is I understand why David Black was putting forward his proposal. David Black cares very deeply about the coast of British Columbia, and he recognizes that diluted bitumen in our coastal waters is a disaster waiting to happen. And he, this is a man who does not need another billion dollars. He's wealthy enough. This is a man who thought he would do what he could to ensure that diluted bitumen would not be in coastal waters. I respect him for that. Do I think Kitimat, whatever, um, that things should go ahead? No. I think it's folly to invest new money in fossil fuel infrastructure. But, you know, that, that headline doesn't actually win. But to have a headline that says Weaver, Weaver understands where Black's coming from doesn't quite win either. So to say Weaver supports Kitimat Refinery, that's a headline. But if you actually look at what I said in the article that, where it said, I never said that. But that's, you know, the headline writer is not the person who writes the story. We all know that. Oh, I know that. I've lived, lived that the hard way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I actually did a piece making fun of that and uh one of my favorite all-time favorite columns was uh i wrote a whole piece about how editors make up their headlines and you have to live with that and so my editor's headline was mark larry young hates puppies was it really yeah it what a, that's a great headline though awesome that's a great it's all about selling selling your ads you've got to bring people to the article and read the ads you know if you if you do a boring headline, no one's going to read the article. You want them to read it. Okay, so you're not pushing for the Kitimat refinery. Never have, never will. Never, in fact, I've been, I was on a panel with David Black. must have been last summer, I guess, or the summer before. Um, the UVic Law, Law Business School has, a, has an intern uh, program in the sun before school starts, and they take a particular issue and they have debates on it. So, so David and I were on a panel where I was you know, vehemently arguing against it. So, no, I haven't. See, that's fascinating because I personally kind of get it because I'm going, okay, the bitumen's worse than the oil. Yeah. yeah. So I get that somewhere along the way it's got to be churned into something else. And I don't get why they don't do it in Alberta. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the argument for not doing it in Alberta was an economic one. But that was at a time, and, and this is why it wouldn't apply now, when there was full employment. And so the cost of bringing enhanced employment was very expensive. When you're at 100% employment and you want to build something, a big infrastructure project, costs go way up because you have to get new employment. Now you don't have that problem. The cost to construct in Alberta would be way down. If they truly wanted to ship something, ship a refined product in a pipeline, get the diluted bitumen out. But again, right now, it's inconsistent with signing Paris. So so, so that too, you know, we're, I'm not going to get out shouting and complaining if Alberta decides to refine uh, its product locally. That's their business. It's inconsistent with Paris. But to throw BC under the bus 
and I, I, to do it. Oh, well, that's just not not good. And I and so I'll stand up for BC all the way through this. And there's a myth to think that somehow oil is the engine of our economy. There are more jobs in the beer industry than in the oil sands, uh, and that's uh, so. Is the beer industry an, an engine of our economy? I don't think most people would think that is the case either. It's it's oil is a small component. It benefits a few a lot. It, it's a, it's a large component in Alberta and parts of Saskatchewan. But across, right, right now in BC, we're not making any money from oil and gas. I was really shocked by how few full-time jobs Kinder Morgan was promising but at the at the end of the line. Forty or something like that. And I'm going. That is less than the crew of the big of the larger whale watching right. companies right. out here. Right. So they're promising 40. fewer full-time jobs than you get on one whale watch cruise. Never mind the fact that we're you know our ferries are the Salish Orca yeah. that every hotel in Victoria advertises yeah. their whale watching tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Right. The the tourism industry on Vancouver Island now seems to be built around the freaking Orca. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going, we get some humpback whales too every now and again. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they are cool. Um, so the other controversy that I've seen you in, the environmental controversy, is Run of River. That the yeah, Rafe, yeah. Rafe Mayor likes to beat you up on. Can you talk me through sure, that? Sure, happy to. I've never actually spoken to Rafe about this. He just makes stuff up. As far as I can tell, I don't know where he's getting his information from. Like I met Rafe years ago. He never struck me as shy. So he's after all of this because he keeps Andrew Weaver, who I've never met. And I'm like, why not? Like I, I yeah, actually like, was. What, so why, Rafe? If you really want to ask me about Run of River, why don't you pick up the phone and ask me about Run of River? So I would have thought that if you're a responsible journalist, well, I don't know that I call him a journalist, but if you're a responsible um, opinion person of some value, if you want people to believe you, you would expect that they talk to you. He's never spoken to me about this. I don't. I mean, know. I'm a huge fan of him as a shit disturber. I think well, there's no doubt he's a phenomenal job. Yeah. So of stirring stuff up. So here's here's I'll give you the history of this. So so somehow Rafe thinks that I supported the outrageous pricing mechanisms that. Gordon Campbell came in when the first Run of River projects happened. So, so I never supported that. Run of River, and there's, there's different types of Run of River. There are small-scale hydro. Uh, we hear about the bad ones. We don't hear about the good ones. We don't hear about the myriad small-scale hydro projects that are on First Nations across British Columbia, First Nations land across British Columbia. We don't hear the one about the one in Lytton. We don't hear about the one in Port Alberni. We don't hear about the ones in Tofino. We hear about the big, massive ones, the Butte Inlet ones. So, so the problem with the way the, the BC Liberals brought it in is in a typical BC Liberal fashion, it was brought into an under-regulated environment, number one. And number two is the pricing that BC Hydro was to pay was outrageous. So Mr. Campbell wanted to actually get the, uh, get this sector going. To, to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to say we're not going to have any, any small-scale hydro in the province is, is irresponsible. To, to say that somehow I supported what Mr. Campbell's do is also irresponsible. The, in the Run of River projects, there was two problems. Number one is, the regulatory environment was not set appropriately. It was, it was, it was a free for all. Number two is the pricing mechanisms were out of whack, burdening BC Hydro with, with, with debt for, for some time to come. So, so I did not support those. In fact, those are, those, we take a very hard look at those in a BC Green government. I will not agree to throw the baby out with the bathwater because done right in non-fish bearing streams, small scale hydro, can actually be very beneficial getting communities off diesel, for example. Uh, First Nation communities around BC, some of them have got off diesel. I talked to the chief of Lytton. Now, he is just over the moon with the success of their small-scale hydro project that's actually brought jobs, stable jobs, to their community, that's actually able to allow them to get off diesel. So, you know, Mr. Rafe Mayer can talk all he wants and make up stuff that apparently I believe in, but the reality is I think he's just being uh, unreasonable. Uh, he's being unreasonable because he hasn't spoken to me. He's being unreasonable because he he's making up views that I've never held and attributed them to me. And he's unreasonable because he's claiming I believe in things I've never believed in. Okay. Um, can you tell me just a bit about your climate action plan? Because I mean, that's been our getting climate some... action plan. Okay. Our our climate action plan again. <clears throat> it is predicated. It is our climate action plan is is the plan that would get BC to eighty percent emissions reduction by twenty fifty and 40% by 2030. It's predicated on increasing the price of carbon at $10 per year for the next few years, uh, taking us to $70 a ton, and, and coupling that with a ZEV standard for vehicles, major investment in electric infrastructure, and on and on and on. So so, so it is a plan that actually would get us to 40% by 2030. The BC NDP 
claim they have a plan that'll do that, but the reality is there's no carbon price increase until years from now. It's irresponsible to say that you can with that target and actually put in place policies that you can ensure won't make that target, and the BC Liberals have no plan. Gotcha. Um, and I've got to ask you this. We wake up election day. It's a tie. Who are we going to call premier? Andrew Weaver. Okay. Could you can you conceivably work with both parties? I've showed in the in the legislature I'm willing to work with both parties. I've had quite a number of bills passed with the BC Liberals, and I have worked with the BC NDP. I've done things to support, for example, Spencer Chandra Hebert's bills. I've done other things, that, but you know the, the problem I have is 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 it's not so much the MLAs. You can work with most of the MLAs because there's some who are a bit odd, particularly in the BC NDP. The problem is some of the super hyper-partisan folk who, who seem to think that, that they are the, what the party is about. It's more difficult to work with partisan folk in party offices than it is to work with MLAs. So I've, I've shown I have. I've done, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff with the NDP. I've given them opportunities. Uh, working with implies a two-way street. The question should be asked to the others. I've seen uh, directly that the BC Liberals have been willing to work with me. It's tough because um, collaboration with the BC uh, NDP, honestly, at times is BC Greens go away because there's such a sense of entitlement and such an opinion of you're either with us or you're against us that at times I, I find it difficult. For them that I, I will and I have, but, you know, it's a two-way street. So the question should be asked to them, are you willing to work with the BC Greens? And uh, I think that um, they would need some soul-searching and they would need to get out of their mentality that you're either with us or against us, because that is not healthy for democracy. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for checking out this special BC election episode of Scanna. I have invited both BC Premier Christy Clark and NDP leader John Horgan on the show, so hopefully we'll be hearing from them about Kinder Morgan, LNG, and their climate change policies. Please rate us on iTunes, subscribe, and spread the word. Check out our news and show notes at scanna.org and the National Observer. And if you're game to be a hero and kick in a buck or more on Patreon so you can join our team and help spread the word about how to help our oceans and orcas, that would kind of rock. Also, if you want to find out how the world fell in love with whales, check out my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available in hardcover, ebook, and a new audio edition available at audible.com. Your first month of membership is free, so if you're not a subscriber, you can test my book as your freebie. And now, here's how Andrew Weaver thinks you should make waves. I am the leader of the BC Green Party, and I've been asked to give you three things that you can do. And now whenever I give a lecture on climate change, I say that each individual can do three things. Number one, each and every one of us, each and every one of us has one of these, a wallet. When we have a wallet, we buy things. When we buy things, we send a signal to, to the market about what we value. Just look at organic sections of, of, of uh, uh, supermarkets. When I was a child, they didn't exist anywhere. Now they're everywhere, and no supermarket would, would, ha would be functioning if they didn't have such a section in it. And that was a demand, res business responding to the demand of consumers. So number one is this. Number two, each and every one of us can vote. So no matter what party you vote for or who you vote for, ensure that the person that you're electing actually understands the issue of climate change, understands what needs to be done, and is willing to stand up for what is right, not kind of be told how to vote, but is willing to stand up and vote for the future as well as their re-election. Make sure that they are there for you. That's number two. And the third thing is education. Each and every one of us knows many, many people who we can convince to do number one and number two. So those three things, each and every one of us is part of the problem, each and every one of us is part of the solution. The solution is as simple as three things. One, how you spend. Two, vote. And three, education, telling people that you know to do one and two. Scanna is produced by Rain Banu. Associate producer, 
Riley Vloswick, and amazing audio engineer for intros and extras, Alexander Brennan Ferguson. Let's end off with my theme song. This is from Local Anxiety's album, Green Pieces. I'm white, I'm straight, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, what's worse, I'm wasp and male I'm so middle class that I make Wonder Bread seem stale I give spare cash to Greenpeace, I buy him his magazine I've written protest letters calling Barbie dolls obscene Out in bed, historically, I got the white guilt blues Even if she's four years old I leave the toilet seat down Without having to be told I'm a feminist sympathizer And know my gender's worst And I'll only have sex If the woman asks me first I've been bad Collectively I got them wagyu blues I renounce my imperialist leanings Feel guilty about where we've been I think that Chris Columbus committed the original sin I know the white oppressors have been major eco-slobs And I'm really, really sorry But I'd still like to keep my job I've been bad Hey man, not personally I got them wagyu blues Dear ethnic individual or oppressed person of age, color, ability, gender, or size, as a person of pink with a Y chromosome, I'd like to collectively apologize for the sins of every white male oppressor in history, because I deeply believe that historical wrongs have been committed, and man, there's a need to set those right. P.S. You think maybe if I get this letter published in Mother Jones, it'll help me get a date? I'm not racist, sexist, violent. I'm none of the above. I'm nice to everybody. So why can't I be loved? I'm marching all the marches. I think the war is heck. And all I want for Christmas is to be politically correct. I'm in bed. Collectively, I got them wacky blues. I'm white, I'm straight, I'm sorry What's worse, I'm wasp and male I'm so middle class That I make Wonder Bread seem stale I've been bad Not recently I got them white gill blues <laughs>